Welcome back to season nine of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Latia Frazier, and along for the ride will be my ableist sidekick, Josiah Jones. Houston now for honest conversations about disability in the church. Enjoy the episode. Hey y'all, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Brittany Sparrow Savage. It's fun when uh, we get to have conversations with friends, but I'll let her introduce herself. Can you tell me or tell us your name, where you're from, and whether and in what ways you identify within the disability community? Yeah, hi, Latia. It's great to be with you. Uh, and just, yeah, fun to always hang out with friends. As you said, I'm Brittany Sparrow Savage, and I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. And the way that I identify in the disability community is a person with a disability, um, but specifically nonverbal perceptional disorder. And that is a non visible disability. Okay, Latia, would it be helpful to the listeners to describe what? No, that's what I was just going to ask. Like, okay. what is that? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, it's it's kind of a tricky disability in the sense that it it's not compartmentalized within a really neat and tidy uh, category within the disability community. Even there's a lot of research going on around it still. Um, nonverbal perceptual disorder is telling you what it uh, is not. It's nonverbal. So my perceptual disorder is visual. It is, by some standards, a neurological disability, uh, but doesn't neatly go into the category of neurodivergent. Um, it basically means that my brain misinterprets the information that my eyes give to it. So it's not visual. Uh, my eyesight doesn't affect it, but it's the way in which my brain interprets specifically uh, space, distance, mass, uh, words on a page, all, all, all kinds of things like that. Um, and uh, it has historically been diagnosed at, on the autism spectrum, but has um, evolved to its own category. Yeah, so we have uh, had many conversations around this, Brittany. Um, and as I've said before, I have cerebral palsy, which is a very physical disability that you can see. But with my cerebral palsy, which isn't true with everybody, but I think it's fairly common, there's also this uh, perceptual depth perception disorder or disability. Um, so we have very common things. Um, we talk about this in terms of the ways our brain sees space, which I usually knock things over because I don't see that. Or uh, funny stories about how, you know, when there's glass doors, but nothing to define it. Oh, uh, gosh, yeah. How we can literally, like, walk in the glass doors. Uh, so yeah. um, this is a PSA to define your glass doors so people don't. Uh, Please put a uh, yellow strip on everything. Yes, yeah. We all welcome the orange-yellow strike. <laughs> yes. Amen and, and amen. It makes uh, just accommodations in terms of reading, right? So reading slow, more slowly, um, but it's not a sense of comprehension. It's just a sense of like getting the information in my brain um, and making sure the words don't jumble, uh, which I think... And that's the case for you, and that's also 
uh, a similar case for me, but not everyone with perceptional disorders uh, can retain or comprehend information in the way that maybe neurotypical brains work. Um, That's so it, yeah, everybody's it's different. It's definitely it's definitely a spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Um, it also means that for me, and I know because I know Brittany that it affects our ability to be able to drive. And so oftentimes folks think it's because I have my physical disabilities that I can't drive, but there are many folks with CP that do. But because I also have this depth perception disability, I, that means I can't drive. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about your denomination, church background, current professional position, anything like that. Yeah. So my church background, uh, I was raised in the Church of the Nazarene, came from a uh, Nazarene pastor's home uh, and went to a local Nazarene college and then a Nazarene seminary. And through that educational process, discerned that um, while well, I was grateful for some of the things that the denomination handed me, that I was a better fit uh, in a different tradition. And through discernment and prayer and love, I found the Episcopal Church. And a month ago, well, what's today? Oh, in five days, it'll be a whole month. I've been ordained a deacon in the Episcopal Church. Yay. So I'm, I thank you. I'm, I'm new to ordained ministry, uh, but I've been a part of the Episcopal Church since 2019. Um, so that's my current, that's where I currently uh, am serving uh, the Church of God. Latia, remind me, what was the next like part the of that specific, question? Like the specific ministry position that you have right now. So the specific ministry position is uh, I'm an assigned transitional deacon. And for anyone who's not aware of fancy pants Episcopal speak, that means that uh, all priests, or for, for those who may not know in our audience, all priests are ordained deacons first. And you are required to be ordained a deacon for a minimum of six months. And if the Lord wills it and the church consents, uh, you will be ordained a priest at the end of those six months or around that time period. Um, so I'm assigned to Grace and Holy Trinity Cathedral as their transitional deacon. And uh, I will I fulfill traditional diaconal responsibilities, which are really uh, responsibilities of being involved in parish life, being involved in your surrounding community, things that we may articulate as acts of mercy, acts of justice, acts of charity. Um, and then even within that, I am employed uh, as their children's coordinator. So kind of wearing lots of different hats, as well as their uh, DEI uh, person. So so I wear many, many hats. What is DEI for folks who might not know what that is? Diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically at the cathedral, doing assessments of our space, anything from accessibility to auditing images that we have um, at the cathedral, which has been a fun and difficult task, and I, I've loved every second of it. Uh, auditing white Jesus never comes with... Uh, uh, without its frustrations and growing points and growing pains. And maybe that's the best way. When you audit beloved images, historic images, 
um, historic in the sense that they're in a historic building, not historic in the sense that they're historically accurate. Uh, but yeah, auditing white Jesus comes with growing pains. There's a shirt that I wear um, from a, uh, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but, uh, uh, and it's his breakup with white Jesus, but, um, but that's a different podcast. We're, we're, we're trying that grace and Holy Trinity. And <laughs> yes. unfortunately, I don't, I don't think he'll ever not be our boyfriend because uh, most of these images are on stained glass windows, but there are some images that we will break up with. Um, that are deeply harmful to our community and that we will take down um, and we'll document for the sake of education, but we right. will not. And that it was there and part of the history. But beyond that, they will no longer be allowed to speak into the lives of our community. So we are taking some pretty strong stands on some images and some, you know. Holding them in tension. We're holding, we're holding them in tension, yeah. I uh, just want to reiterate, and I've said this in previous podcasts, but... Uh, that we are, or I was intentional about reaching out to many folks with from many different denominations around disability and disability theology, partly because the Church of the Nazarene does not currently have sort of a commission or committee or whatever our word would be that specifically um, helps folks along the journey who are ministers or those called to ministry that identify as folks with disabilities and so oftentimes folks with disabilities who are called to ministry reach out to our sister denominations to find some uh, sort of camaraderie or support um so there's that with that i just want to say and ask this um because everybody's different within the disability community do you prefer do you even care in terms of the type of language you use, whether that's um, people first language or identity first? Personally, I I prefer uh, people first language. Um, that is my preferred. I, I don't take it personal when I'm talking with people within the disability community that may use disability first language. But I, I think in public settings, um, in educational spaces, it, on the just on the streets, I think people first is always um, the best way to, to go about it. But when you're among kin, when you're among people who have not li same lived experience, because the disability community is so broad, but who have who have similar lived experiences even if that similarity is the fact that you're just all classified as disabled, um, it, it's a little bit different. So I don't, so to answer your question directly, people first language. Yeah. And sort of a both end, which has been true of most of the ones folks we've had uh, the opportunity to be on the podcast so far. Um, so just to lighten the uh, mood a little bit. And we have many uh, stories being people with disabilities. What's a funny, like, like every day I have a disability story that you want to share. Um, so uh, yeah, that's hard. It's hard to think of just one, but I think <laughs> my go my I, I I think as such as with people with disabilities, we have these go-to stories to say, here is a lighthearted anecdote. And it and I'm kind of 
walking away from this personally. Sorry, I'm not answering your question directly. I'm kind of walking away from this because I found that too often people with disabilities fall into the trope of the funny person. Um, we use we use humor to deflect the the hard realities of our lives or um, to deflect what we perceive to be the pending pushback that we're going to receive when we're when we're articulating our need for accommodations mm-hmm. or accessibility. Uh, so it, when I was going through my educational process, particularly when I was uh, pursuing my master's at Nazarene Theological Seminary, um, I would need to inform professors that I had a disability. And it was very common uh, that I was told I did not appear to have a disability, which is true. I don't appear to have a disability. Um, but, uh, I do. And, uh, I have the proper documentation, IEP notes from psychiatrists, all of that, which was already submitted, it submitted, submitted, it submitted to the, uh, registrar, but I needed to take the initiative and inform my professors. And in trying to explain nonverbal perceptual disorder, I would always use the same story about my time in undergrad uh, where I was taking exegetical class, and I forget what it was. I had to write a short five-page essay on the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in some random appalling epistle. I can't, or yeah, appalling epistle. I can't even remember which one. And I insert epistle here. And every time I thought I wrote Gentiles, I actually wrote genitals, and had no idea because of my my reading disability, I read more by shape than I do by letters. And so Gentiles and genitals are kind of similar in shape. Mm-hmm. And I am just type, type, type. This is the best work. I'm feeling myself. And I turn it in. And in the class, the professor says, somebody in this class thinks they're funny. And I'm thinking, oh, who is it? Who thinks they're funny? Because this was a difficult professor uh, who was not someone we would joke around with in that way. And I'm like, wow, someone's brave. And he said, Miss Sparrow, after class, will you come see me? And I was like, oh, shoot. Was my paper that good? Like, because I I work very hard. I'm very hard worker uh, when it comes to my studies. And I take it very seriously. And he said, you know, I just don't think this was funny at all. And I, I'm not understanding what the concern was that he's going through it with me. And somehow through the conversation, we realized there was just this big misunderstanding. And I explained to him, I have a disability. I don't read by letter. I read by shape. I really thought I was writing Gentiles. I did not realize I was writing genitals. And at the end of the conversation, uh, he said, well, I guess it could technically work either way. So it was a. Uh, it, it was my awakening. That story is kind of a funny story, but it was also my awakening that that I was not doing myself any any favors by not articulating my disability, mm-hmm. by not verbalizing the realities of my disability and how it manifests itself in my everyday life, particularly in the academic sphere. I'm just, I'm curious about something and I've become the token, say what an ableist is thinking and then like hopefully not offend anybody, right? It sounds to me so far hearing your story, you're often put in this position of proving 
right? Proving the disability. Because for many that don't live with disabilities or don't fully understand disabilities, it's equated immediately to, oh, they're the people that park in. And again, Latia is going to correct something I say, and I'll just, it's fine. I'm learning. It's great. Um, If you're able to have that placard so you can park in the handicapped spot, right? That's the really clear, clean uh, designation of, oh, these are folks that have disabilities. But this is so much more nuanced. Uh, I, I can only imagine, this is the immediate thought that has come to my mind, the angst and frustration of just having to like validate your own struggles just because they are invisible. Uh, so it's not so much a question, but maybe maybe something helpful for somebody like me. Um, what What's maybe an example of each, the worst way that you've interacted with somebody that, and maybe this is one of the those stories, right? You said something wrong in a paper and your professor had to lecture you, but what's What's been a really great interaction you've had with somebody that doesn't have a disability that just says, oh, okay, how can I be more accommodating? Like, give me, give me kind of the, the brief spectrum for someone like me to, to meet you for the first time. Like, oh, do you have the handicap placard in your van though? I don't totally believe you. Like, what is, what's the, the spectrum of like first meeting a person that doesn't have disability interacting with you, accepting or not accepting that you have a disability? So before you do that, Brittany, I'm going to correct a few things. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so handicap is a word that's, it's a really taboo word within the disability community. It's almost akin to calling a black person the N word. So we want to change that and say accessible, right? So accessible parking, accessible bathroom. And I also just want to note that like, Brittany has an invisible disability. I have a visible disability. But to say that um, she doesn't look like somebody that has a disability is an ableist statement. Because I wonder, like, what does someone with a disability look like? And usually that's around society's understanding of what it is to have a, in quotes, normal body. Okay. Well, and Noted. I think it also... and. And this might be something you tackle in, in a different episode. I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but I think it's helpful to know why the word handicap is so offensive, uh, period, is because it, the etymology is cap in hand. So it implies that people with disabilities are beggars or have limited, it, it's really a term coined within modern society, industrial society, capitalistic society, that you are what you produce. So it, um, it is, it is that societal lenses way to degrade people because they have nothing to offer the community. Um, which, uh, uh, more collectivist cultures would never even conceptualize that. Um, because we're, we're your storytellers and your memory keepers, um, we're your artists and your creatives, um, and your thinkers and your writers and your story giver. So yeah, it's, that's the reason I think it's helpful to understand because I didn't even know that Latia educated me on that. So, um, so, so the white spectrum, I, I think this has probably already been touched on, but not assuming that my, my body and my experience, my disability is public domain. Um, I don't have to prove anything to you. No one has to prove anything to you. That's no one, deserves that as someone who's just meeting for the first time um where it gets tricky is in 
in in places where we are responsible to one another in unique ways. Like my professor was responsible to me uh, because I was his student. I'm his student. I'm responsible to him in these 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 social interactions. And so that's when needing to name it is important. Um, and then maybe even needing to have proper documentation is is important um, to 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 kind of show that I'm not self-diagnosing. Uh, but just bumping into somebody at a coffee shop, it's not, yeah, it's not my job. I don't have to prove that to you. Uh, but a good interaction has been when when people have asked thoughtful questions and have received maybe some thoughtful pushback, which is not something I have to do a lot. I, I'll have to admit that's not that's not the reality in my everyday um, interactions. If anything, uh, people will say things like, well, if you ever need a ride, just call me. If the weather's bad and you need a ride, let, let me know. And I have taken people up on that, um, which has been hard for me, not for them. It's been hard for me to have to uh, ask people for rights because we live in a in a geographic area, particularly the Kansas City area, where um, the ability to drive and autonomy are so interwoven. Um, independence and the ability to drive kind of go hand in hand. Um, and that's that's an issue that affects people with disabilities, people without access to uh, affordable transportation, cars, things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, that's, yeah, the best way is when people just ask thoughtful questions. And I don't, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I've never met someone with a disability that wasn't willing to engage in conversation if it was done respectfully and and if they honored their time. Because the worst thing is like, tell me about your disability in 10 words or less, but you're trying to like meet a deadline, obviously. Like, no, read the room, ask like, hey, do you have a second? Can I ask you a question? And if they say no, just say no, I totally understand. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Stopping someone in the grocery store and saying, you know, why why is it that you stopped before going down those stairs? I've had that before where while it's a non-visible disability, it does affect me physically where I saw something. I thought it was a step, but I couldn't tell if it was a step. And uh, people were all freaked out because I think they thought there was a snake down there or a bug or I don't know. They're like, why is she not just walking? And was, I couldn't tell the difference between the depths of this one singular step down. So yeah, I, I hope that answers the question. That was kind of a long way around it. I hope you get this question a lot because of your disability being invisible, but maybe. Um, like, so if you were, if you had the opportunity to have a magic pill or uh, because we're in church world, like if somebody said, hey, Brittany, can I pray for you? And if I, you know, that your disability would no longer be um would you would you take the pill would you would you get that prayer it's it's hard uh you're asking me on a day in kansas city where it's windy and 32 and i stood sat at a bus stop for an hour uh and so driving that you know Driving that sweet, sweet car with the heated seats that I don't own uh, would be really nice. But, and this is something that has been hard work for me, but I think I'll have to say no. 
And I'm not saying no because I'm convinced. I'm saying no because I'm trying to deconstruct my own implicit internalized ableism. Um, I'm trying to embrace my identity as a full image bearer now in the body that I have now with the mind that I have now. And that's not easy. Um, and I also know that I have accessibility. I, I have access to things that many people in the disability community don't have. So I lecture anyone who said, yes, I want that magic prayer. I want that magic pill. I don't have chronic pain. It, I so I I would never my my statement of saying no. I don't think I would take that prayer, and no, I don't think I would uh, take that magic pill. Isn't a judgment to those who might say, yeah, no, I, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, but I think going kind of along that same thing. Uh, at the height of my frustration with my disability, what really helped me turn the corner was the realization that what's disabling me isn't me or isn't the fact that I see the world differently because of my disability or have to interact with the world because of my disability. It's the fact that my society, my world, my city, my lack of access disables me. Uh, so working with... Uh, Books like um, a, a History of Disability in America by Kim Nielsen and a book, um, excuse me, Dr. Kim Nielsen, put some respect on the name, and uh, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church by Dr. Amy Kenny. These books have really helped me articulate and reimagine myself and what it means to be, be disabled is more of a social construct than an ontological state. I am not disabled. I am disabled by my society, by my culture, by lack of imagination, by my lack of imagination. So those within the disability world would, 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 would frame what you're saying, I think, in terms of the social model of disability which is what you said, it's our society, the structures that disable us, but it doesn't negate the actual diagnosis of things that we do have, as opposed to the medical model of disability. Oh, absolutely not. That would say that the problem is us, uh, and if we could take a pill or do something to mediate that, to become society's image of normal, so that's the medical model disability just a little history note here yeah and i think um i think i would also say this is not anti my statements i know i, I don't want to speak for you but i think i am speaking for you when i say we're not anti-medical or not anti-accessibility aids that come through medical advancements um i am just a boss since kendall came out with the e-reader and the and the uh the uh, uh, what they call it dyslexic font, but I don't have dyslexia, but it 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 meets that accessible need. Mm. I am reading books like they're going out of style. I am reading books like someone's trying to ban them. They are, but I'm reading lots and lots and lots of books, and um, I'm doing it in a way that I never was able to before. I'm comprehending in a way I was never able before. I I use a a prism that I can put over uh any written text, it bends the words 
in such a way that my 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 brain is able to receive that information. So this is not against accessible aids that have come to us through through no, metal. I, I love my right? skinny I love legs. Oh yes. My skinny legs, aka my crutches. Yes, uh, girl, embrace them. So but I think what we have to do too is reimagine how we talk about these things. Like mm. you are not confined to using crutches. You're empowered because of crutches. Mm. I, and I, it's so interesting how people would say, well, did you really read that book? Who will question the retention of information that I received because I listened to a book versus read a book. And I am being a little classist, a little elitist when I say this, but I promise you the books that I'm reading, it's it's not, you know, no offense. And it's, I love Fifty Shades of Grey. That's a great book. But I was reading, uh, I was reading um, uh, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. You know, it, I'm, I'm, my mind is now being open to new things I would have never read before because I was reading what I only had to read because that's all I could do to maintain and keep up with my classwork. And now I'm able to broaden my uh, scope i am able to explore things i've never been able to explore i am empowered in a different way because i can read and retain information um in a way that's accessible to me in the way that i learn yeah and i would say that uh the the method by which one reads a book should not negate whether the book is read right and i think hopefully yeah. now our culture is coming away from that with all the apps, Audible and the Libby app for those who who get stuff from the library. Um, yeah, love so the Libby app, love Hoopla. Yes, um, and I think you talked mostly about how your disability um, shapes your 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 self image, um, in particular because you you are not someone who. I don't know because I don't I don't know how to name it, and so you might be able to name it better for me, uh, because I think you're sort of in between, and by that I mean you ha you may have been born with your disability or acquired it. It's kind of this in between space, right? In that you didn't have like an accident that then meant that you had a disability, but you were unaware of. Uh, being a person with a disability for a time, I think, right? So, sort of, sort of not. Uh, the rhinoplasty that I have is a proud badge to that not being a... It may not have been named, but I was always very aware that my inability to perceive death affected my everyday life. I, I had broken my nose seven times before I was in preschool. So, um... I I knew, you know, I didn't play on the playground those fast games. I did, you know. So yes, but then also, for lack of a better term, I passable. Can you you tell, know, I don't. Can you say more about that? What does that mean? It means I walk. I mean, Latia, you don't walk into a room. And people not know that you have a disability. Mm -hmm. uh, I have been with you in public. And people have said, you're such an inspiration. And I'm thinking to myself, she 
put sugar in her coffee. Stop. No way. Like, you're going to give her a big head. I have to spend the rest of the day with her. You're hyping her up too much. Like, get out of here. But um, it's just like, or people probably think, oh, she probably can't think for herself. You know, things like that. I, I don't get that until I have to name it because necessity requires me to name it. Um, when I was going through uh, the process of, of ordination in the previous denomination, uh, it became very clear that my intelligence was brought into question when they found out I had a disability. There was a lot of concern around my prowess to be an effective minister of the gospel and my ability to drive the church van. I, that the you know, um, even though driving might be a very tangible way in which my disability affects me every day, it's not the only one, and yet that seemed to be the one that people held on to. And then that correlated, well, if you're not smart enough to drive a church van, are you smart enough to preach? Are you smart enough to, you know, and that's because we just equated disability with inability. Mm-hmm. And and that's not 100% wrong, right? But I think you've articulated it best that we all have inabilities. Uh, my disability, though, is not one of them. Like, I would love to fly. Oh, gosh, wouldn't that be great? It's never going to happen. <laughs> you know, that's an inability. <laughs> just like I won't ever be a firefighter but you know some of that yes, has to do with my the other people we know <laughs> exactly so there's that um, and some of it is we just don't want to run into burning buildings but mad respect for those who do you know right um can you tell me so uh, kind of tangentially you told me some negative experiences you've had um within the church because of your disability can you tell me a positive experience that you've had where folks knew you had a disability and you know it was received positively um i'm sure we are all familiar with the term asset-based ministry uh, and i'm going to try to define it as best as i know how and please jump in and correct me um because this is kind of a term that i've just been introduced to but as, asset-based ministry isn't focusing on what you do have. It's focusing on what you, or I'm sorry, let me try that again. Yeah. Asset-based ministry isn't focusing on what you don't have. It's focusing on what you do have. Is that correct? Yes. It, in the environment that I find myself now in the Episcopal Church, I am seen as one of those assets. Now, this is tricky because we don't want to tokenize. Right. However, I don't sense that is the case uh, because I'm always in conversation with and I am consulted based off my life experiences. I'm never asked to be the monolith for the disabled experience. Um, and that's that that was that has been a pleasant surprise. Um, I'm on the communication committee. Latia can tell you I barely opened this phone call. Uh, you, I, I don't even know how to use my email and that's not because of my disability. That's just cause I'm a Lunite, but, uh, I don't, I, I'm not technology proficient. Savvy, yeah. Uh, yeah. Savvy. That's a good word. Thank you. Savvy. Um, it's just not my bag. It's not my thing. It's not. Yeah. Um, but they put me on the communication committee because they want to know what, what does it mean to, to communicate on a website to people who need access um, at, uh, websites that are compatible with programs that will read the content of your website to you. 
and not every website is accessible in that way. Not not every website um, is accessible with visual cues or um, other things that that people with disabilities across the spectrum may may need um, on a website. So, uh, and I can't speak to all those, but I can speak to mine. And so, and and I yeah, that's been my positive positive experience and. As far as I can tell, now, as I said, I'm a transitional deacon, and I hope to be um, transitioning to the priesthood soon, the Lord wills it, and finding a job that is in alignment with that vocational calling. And But I, uh, I, I don't see it as the hurdle that I once saw it as. Um, but I, I think the Episcopal Churches are has had these conversations for a lot longer than maybe some other denominations have. So you uh, named a couple of books earlier. My Body's Not a Prayer Request is one that I uh, remember. But uh, how has your understanding of God been impacted by your disability and your understanding of disability theology? I think uh, something I'm really grateful for with from my mother tradition is a rich understanding of Wesleyan theology. And a part of that, and this is in the Anglican tradition as well, which Wesley was an Anglican, but um, really is a, a tradition of incarnational theology. And um, I think I had to, when I was deconstructing, and that doesn't mean I have deconstructed, but as I've been on this journey of deconstructing my own internalized ableism, I'm always brought back to the incarnation and I'm always brought back to the crucifixion, um, which I think is an antithesis of, of the incarnation, but that's not the only place we can point to and say that Jesus was willing to limit God's self to kenotically, uh, you know, kenosis, empty God's self, uh, or e empty Jesus's self, uh, to make space for others and to to live into the experience of humanity and that meant the brokenness of humanity in almost all its forms um even le leading to the physical uh, breaking of his body in the crucifixion and thinking you know i am broken and my my brokenness is is seen on full display but that does not negate my ability uh, or maybe not full display it is a non-visible disability but my brokenness manifests itself in a in a very real way, but that doesn't negate my glorification because even Jesus was glorified uh, with scarred hands and uh, a scarred side and scarred feet. You know, um, after the resurrection, still had those scars. So, so the resurrected Jesus uh, uh, embodied disability and also invites Thomas, but invites folks to like to touch that, which is culturally inappropriate, right? Because most folks that had some sort of disability or illness were considered unclean. And yet in in that resurrected, disabled body, Jesus invites Thomas to touch um, disability, that it's not something to be feared or anything like that. So I think that's uh, great. Um, I wonder what advice would you give to someone with a disability who feels a calling to ordain to ministry? Mm. That's a, that's a hard question. Um, I think, uh, 
I think tapping into denominations that are already supportive. Uh, and we need people who can stay and fight. Uh, I was not one of those people. That doesn't make me weaker or lesser than. That was just the reality of who I am and where I'm at. Um, but I had to go find a place that could hold me in a different kind of way. And that's not to say that my congregants don't question me. That doesn't mean my congregants don't fall into um, the trap of ableism. Uh, it, it just means that the wider support system, the episcopate, the people in le leadership, mostly understand or have a robust understanding of the inclusivity in a way that they can hold, hold all of me. Um, doesn't mean it's perfect, but we at least have a starting point. And I think that's important is where you're looking for your spiritual home to be and how you can serve and live into your vocation, to your call. Uh, you, you need to be in a place that can empower that and not stifle that. Um, Nowhere is perfect, but I think that's a good starting point. And then once you identify that, find people who can help support you and uh, find that chosen family. And, and a lot of times for disability, it's on the online community. Um, there's a lot of Facebook groups out there. And that's not where I've identified that for myself. Uh, I found a group here in Kansas City called The Whole Person. Uh, but that. Yeah, that's, I think that's a good starting point. And that's my opinion. Yeah. And what advice would you give to credentialing boards or ministry boards or whatever the term is in the Episcopal Church uh, as they are interviewing or helping folks in the discerning process toward ordained ministry that when they encounter folks with disabilities? I think if you're on credentialing boards or if you are in any sort of process of discernment for ministers, it's your responsibility to do your work. Um, it's not a person of color's job to educate you on racism in the United States. It is not a person uh, within the LGBTQIA community to help you understand uh, human sexuality, it is not a disabled, you know, and I, I know I'm glumping all these things together, but I think there's a lot of examples here, right, where you have to do your work, just like I have to do my work. Um, if you have been entrusted with that great responsibility, then you need to take time to to educate yourself. And we've named two really great books. Um, if you would like one from a religious perspective, My Body Is Not a Prayer Request, if you like a good old-fashioned history textbook, um, uh, a, a history of disability in America is a great place to start. And that book is pretty recent. In fact, Nelson was footnoted several times by Dr. Kenny in My Body Is Not a Prayer Request. So, uh, Cass, there are um, lots of trusted sources. There are fabulous websites, uh, trusted websites that um, I'm sure if they reach out to this podcast can get links to. But it's your job to educate yourself so that before you get into that room, you have some sort of starting point. And I think, again, thinking about this as asset-based ministry, um, because if if God is a God of justice and liberty and love, God has a propensity for, for those assets that maybe society doesn't, and that is people with disabilities. And so we're able to bring something to the ecclesia that no one else can bring. And we're able to be image bearers 
in a way that other people can't. That's not better than, but that is a way that you need us uh, in a way that you can't be you without us. In the same way we can't be us without you. So I think starting with asset-based ministry mindset is another way to start, is, an, is another way to go about it. Can I... Uh... Going to ask a question for for the average layperson, um, particularly those that disability theology or even wrestling with disabilities is new to them. Uh, whether you're a, you're their pastor or not, I, maybe maybe it's different. I don't know. Uh, you had said earlier that curiosity is welcome as long as it's respectful. Um, that you know you don't mind talking about what is going on, like what your disability looks like. Um, but then you know how do we? How do we not turn that into tokenism? So uh, generally, my question becomes, in a faith community where everyone is trying to share their lived lives with one another, um, it, there's there has been, and we've talked about this in a couple previous episodes, almost a taboo nature of, oh, we don't even ask about that, even if it is respectful, even if it's mm. to better understand the person. So whether you're the pastor or whether you're a, a, you know, a fellow lay person in the church, what would you say to that person that's maybe listening to this podcast and thinking, well, can I even talk to this person with a disability about their disability? Yeah, I, you know, as as someone who is uh, clergy, I I think this is just me. I am not speaking for other clergy with disability. For me, I welcome those questions and have resigned. Might sound like a word of capitulation, and that's not what I mean. But have made peace with the reality that. I, that I will get those questions and they may not be as respectful as I want them to be. And I am going to hold that in a different space than maybe I would if the calling was off. Not to say that I would like Chuck Norris roundhouse kick that question, but I wouldn't. I think I, I feel like when we have, by being in the pastor relationship, we're committing to something that I'm, I'm here to help journey with you and lead you. And so, um, I, I might be a little bit more patient with it, but I think when you're in community with one another, you just don't know until you ask. And I I think by starting with, may I ask you a question about your disability uh, is never a bad starting point, but typically most of us wouldn't ask that question if there wasn't some sense of relationship that predicated that. And for some, that may just be the fact that you share a pew on Sunday morning. For others, it might have to come with time. I think that's where intuition and discernment come into play. A lot of us, I know this is not quantifiable, but a lot of us can sense when it's time to ask those questions. When Latia and I first met, we never spoke openly about our disabilities um, in the way we do now, but we've built relationship with one another. And I think that's the case. Uh, th there's a there's a person in my congregation uh, now who has a physical disability and has never become a topic of conversation between us uh, because I don't feel comfortable bringing it up because this person never has and uh, just doesn't doesn't feel necess necessary. They have access to everything they need um, because that access has been curated for them not just for them, but for people with needs such as theirs. And yeah, it just hasn't come up, but it, maybe one day it will. And and if it does, I the conversation will probably start with, may I ask you a question about your, about your disability? Or sometimes it comes with, 
I really like your scooter. That thing is hot. You know, it was just saying saying something positive about mobility aids and the way that they empower us. Or, hey, I think it's so cool that you use that magnifying glass because um, it's really cute and it's gilded with, with gold leaf. And I love that you ha- or have that. Or, 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 you know, man, those socks underneath those leg braces, dude, I like the Perry. Very cool. So thinking of ways to verbalize and 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 frame the positive nature of this and I, I think sticky subject but mm, as a bad example i was about to say the sign language that was used at the nfl i think there's some pushback to that not because the deaf community is like well we've always been doing this you just <laughs> hearing people are now just aware of it of course it's cool and beautiful we've been cool and beautiful forever so um so that's kind of a bad example but you know making people aware that we should be framing this as Oh gosh, we don't have to split our our screen with someone who's signing. That we get to split our screen with someone who's signing. How cool is that? So, mirroring that for one another and kind of normalizing it and being the brave soul who steps out on that limb because I I don't always know I I don't always know if I'm offending somebody and I just kind of have to kind of have to just say it and and be be receptive to pushback. Be receptive to pushback and do self-action and reflection and say, oh, man, was that coming from a heart? Did I frame that in a way that was intentionally hurtful? And if it, if the answer is no, then say, okay, how was I unintentionally hurtful to that person? And how can I sometimes go back and name it? Not expecting an apology. I don't think that's always the best way. Usually you'll get like a, you know, or not an apology, but they might not always say, well, I forgive you. That's okay. You th- this person may not feel the burden to to absolve you of your sins, but uh, you know, using it as as a learning point and kind of going with the flow. I don't know, Latia, you could maybe speak to that more than I can. Yeah, I I think for me, it's a matter of relationship, and um, that sometimes folks without disabilities feel kind of this weird right to like ask yeah. a question. No, and, that's um, true, yeah. and I'm like, but I don't have to answer you. And why are you asking me that question? Um, and it's, is it a matter of curiosity because I'm like this exotic thing to you? Or is mm-hmm. it a matter of you want to build relationship? And then I would ask if it's a matter of relationship, um, I would just ask them to think about their relationships and think about how intrusive questions or what can be intrusive questions happen over time and not and not just because, well, you're I'm just gonna ask you. Um, it's yeah, and that's humanized. Yeah. And that's the thing with respectful is what are questions you would ask any other person? I person. I don't I don't ask strangers the color of their underwear, right? That would be considered <laughs> tab that would be considered taboo and rude. That's private information. I don't ask for your social security number. Um don't don't ask people with disabilities how they use the restroom, how they get in and out of their wheelchair. That's none of your business, um, unless they make it your business. That that that's that's those aren't those aren't the types of questions that are respectful. Um, and I think that that is kind of a line that's hard. But you you know you know, and I, I also think um, yeah, <laughs> when you think respect just. If you weren't going to ask it to anyone else, 
why ask it in the context of a person with disability? Uh, is that fair, Latia? Yeah. It sounds like the differentiator, the, the line of the sand is if it actually helps enhance the relationship, right? It's naturally going to come up as opposed to me, the person without a disability deserves to have my curiosity satiated. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And not objectifying. And I think a good example would be somebody with a disability comes into your worshiping space and has been coming for a while, maybe two Sundays. Let's let's throw that number out there. Hey, is is it is this space pretty accessible for you or is there something that I'm not aware of as as the clergy person here? I would like to be made aware. Is there something else that we can do in the best of our abilities? Because don't ever say, is there something we can do? And then find out the fix is like half a million dollars um, and act like you're going to have it solved by next Sunday. As all pastors on this call, we know that that sometimes that's how parishioners' minds work is building projects happen overnight. But, um, uh, you know, is there anything we could do with best of our abilities to help make this space more accessible? And then I think that would be a natural like segue. But you're asking that question not because you're curious. You're asking that question because you're the shepherd of a flock and you want all of your sheep to feel welcomed. So um, I think that's also the other thing is like stopping yourself and saying, why am I asking this question? <laughs> what is the point of this? And sometimes curiosity, I mean, I've asked Latia questions about curiosity. I said, hey, you got a new band on your crutches. Is that one more comfortable? But I, But we also like, already have established relationship and Latia still holds the right to be like girl shut up I don't want to tell you that like <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's her that's her right I, my right to say if I say yeah I'm having a really bad perceptual disorder day I don't I'm just really not feeling like going all up and down going for a hike today I don't have to say anything else after that that's okay that that's the end of the conversation that's all right well, thanks so much, Brittany, for being willing to to have this conversation. Is there any last thing you want to be sure to say that like that we didn't uh, address, or is there anything that you want to plug that folks can connect to you or whatever? No, I think those two books are kind of where I'm living right now. I'm I'm just sitting with those two because I've read them recently and currently doing a book study on them. If you find yourself on the West Missouri Diocese in the Episcopal Church, um, please go on to uh, just if you, I can't remember, gosh, I can't remember the, the website at Dio Missouri, I don't, dot org, I don't know. But if you Google West Missouri Diocese and you find um, access for all God's children, that is our committee for and by people with disabilities. Um, and if you're looking for more resources in this area, uh, reach out and I'll do my best to connect with you and listen to you. Cause I might've said something today that you're like, that is not my lived experience as a person with a disability. And here's where your implicit ableism crept in and you need to check that. I'm always open to that correction. Cause I, I'm also growing and I'm also deconstructing and, uh, to use some old school language from a different life. I, I, I'm still on this journey to wholeness and holiness in Christ. So I'm always open to, the, to those conversations, but I also would love to know how maybe I can resource you. Um, and I think that's uh, the thing that we're noticing with all the folks that we've uh, had conversations with so far is that many other the, the denominations that are not the Church of the Nazarene have a committee or a group that are 
are for and with folks with disabilities. Um, so maybe that is the purpose or one of the purposes of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Okay. Well, thank you, Latia. Appreciate appreciate this conversation. Thank you. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Latia Frazier. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it. Thank you.